This morning we're in Acts chapter 1. We're going to bring ourselves to the end of Acts chapter 1 as we uh, well, continue what we've started here just recently in, in seeing uh, the book of Acts, the continuation of Luke's account of the work of Jesus, what he began and what he continues to do. We're going to read this morning from verse 12 through the end of the chapter, verse 26, and uh, spend a few moments uh, taking a few lessons this morning from there. So Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. When they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer, supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120 and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now, this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language a Keldamah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and that no one live in it, and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus was, went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph, called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. They prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship for which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage of Scripture, encourage us and help us learn and grow today as we see your work continue, what you can do in us and through us as a people of God. We thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Anaya, can you do me a favor? Can you just get my water bottle from the back for me, please? Thank you. As, this, is, this is an odd passage to be honest. And, and as we, we look at it and think through it, I mean, when, when I was studying and preparing for it and thinking about what, what to do with this, I struggled to see the connection a little bit at first. Thank you, hey? Uh, and maybe you do too as you read through it. So what is the relevance of this to today and, and to what we, we need to understand and what God is, is doing it's, it's possible that there may be in what went on here in the events that, that take place here with the choosing of Matthias 
that there were some Jewish implications there about what it meant for them to be able to witness to the people of, of Israel. But that doesn't really explain why Luke would include it here. Because Luke isn't writing specifically to Jews who are going to understand, oh, well, that's that. And now, some 2,000 years later, that doesn't really mean much to us either, the cultural aspect of what this may or, or may not have to do. So what's, what's the point? I mean, we've just seen Jesus has just ascended. And having just ascended, he's given them instructions about this great mission, which we talked about last week, and the, 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 the commission for us to, to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to continue on the work that he began. It was a mission of great importance in sharing the, the message of the gospel the, the of salvation and, and a, a mission of enormous scope in terms of reaching the whole world. And Acts indeed shows us that beginning, starting at Jerusalem, and it, it ends in, in Rome. Uh, but we might think, so if that's what Jesus has said, and he's just ascended, and he said, the Holy Spirit is going to come, wait for him, and, and, and he will come, and then get on with it. Why not just skip from there, from the Ascension and the Great Commission, to chapter 2, and Pentecost, and the coming of the Spirit? Why this bit in the middle? Why that? How is it going to help us? Turns out, oddly enough, the word of God, that this passage is indeed important in helping us understand God's work and what God is doing and, and why he goes about things the way he does. It, one, it teaches us about the continuing work of God, that God is continuing a work which he began long before. But it also teaches us about waiting, waiting Waiting is a big part of the Christian life. Well, waiting is a big part of life, but, but certainly the, the Christian life. And, and sometimes the waiting is frustrating. We wait for a lot of things. We, we, we wait for, uh, for answers to conundrums and problems and, and questions and issues and health in our life. We, we, we wait for wisdom and knowing what to do we we wait and we wait and we wait sometimes to see God work in the lives of the people around us waiting is a big part of what God does in our life and an important part but often frustrating but what is also intriguing about this passage is not that just it's just about waiting and that there is importance and that there's some things to learn from that but what's also intriguing in this passage is this is an absolutely unique moment in history. There is not another time in history like what is recorded in these verses here. What makes this absolutely unique is it sits in a period between the ascension of Christ and the coming of the Spirit. There is no other time in history like it. It is a unique place in the work of God and the time of God's work. Now, it means a number of things. What that means is, like what we'll see throughout much of Acts, is it means that what we read here is descriptive. It is not entirely prescriptive. What that means is it's describing to us what went on. It's not necessarily telling us exactly what to do. So it's not prescribing necessarily, but describing what went on. There's lots of those moments in Acts. 
Okay, here we see it, and we'll talk a little bit about it here in a moment with the, the lots and, and that. But there's a lot of these moments in Acts which are descriptive. They show us what is going on because uh, it's a unique moment in history. Now, that doesn't mean we can't learn from them, that there aren't things that we can draw from them and apply. But life is not going to be the same as what we see in these moments of Scripture. So what can we learn from this time of waiting, this time between when Jesus ascends and when he sends the Holy Spirit? What can we learn in these moments and what takes place? Well, firstly, let's consider this idea of waiting for God's promise. That's what they were told to do, waiting for God's promise. And the first thing that we see them do in verse 12, it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey the first thing we see them do is they obey God's word they obey God's word and they waited the importance of their actions in verse 12 so the fact that they leave the mount of all of it they go back to Jerusalem and there they go to the upper room and wait those words are based and the importance of those words are based in verse 4 verse 4 and being assembled together with them he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promise. And that's what makes verse 12 significant. They're doing what Jesus told them. They are following his first command. Now, that's not necessarily convenient. See, most of these men and the the followers there, they're from Galilee. They don't live in Jerusalem. They've been down there with with Jesus because of the Passover and and probably stayed longer than they would normally stay because of all that that went on but their homes and their livelihoods and their life is in Galilee to the north so this isn't necessarily a convenient thing for them to do when Jesus says wait he didn't say how long he didn't give them any indication that, that of, of when this was going to happen how long they would have to stay what it would mean when it was going to to happen how it would happen where do they start What are they supposed to do? Jesus has just told them, I've got a great mission for you. You need to go through the power of the Spirit. You will do it. Where do they start? How is it going to begin? What does God want from them now? They had to trust that the rest would follow. That if they simply did what Jesus said there at the beginning, to go and wait, that everything else that God wanted them to do would follow after the waiting. That it would come. There was so much they didn't know, so much in that time of waiting that that ran through their minds. Obedience in what we know is always the key. Not obedience in what we think we might know or what we might want to happen, but obedience in what we know is always the key. The rest will follow. How are we going to reach our neighborhood for Christ? Do what we know to do now where we are right now. Of course, we know waiting is hard. It's never easy to wait, to wait for the answers, to wait for the instruction, to wait for the guidance, to wait for what needs to come. Like I said, how, how long would they have to wait? They, they, didn't, they didn't know. How would it happen? How was the promise going to come? How would they know the Spirit had come? Would it be easy for them to know? Would it be hard for them? How were they going to know that? What was going to come next? So many things that perhaps were running through their mind in this waiting. Surely, 
Surely, in, in their minds, maybe, at least in, in mine, maybe Galilee would have been a better place to do the waiting. It's where they were from, their family was, were there, and, and it may be that their families were now in Jerusalem with them. There was a larger group of disciples gathered in Galilee, probably 500 or so up in Galilee. There's only 120, including the apostles down in, in Jerusalem. And surely, if this mission was as big and as important and uh, as moving as Jesus had said before he gone, surely it's best to just get started. Why wait? Why not just get on with it and send the Spirit now and just move on? We don't do waiting well anymore. These days, if we want something, there's always some way to get it. And to have it when we want. We have lost, in many ways, the ability to wait. But God doesn't rush his plans because we're impatient. He continues doing what he knows he needs to do. And so having obeyed God's word and taking the time to sit and wait, as God had said, we find that in the waiting, they gather with God's people. They gather with God's people. Verse 13, And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. There is a diverseness of God's people. Great eclectic mix here of God's people. They gather together in the upper room. Now, it's um, probably our inclination to think that this is the same room where they had the Last Supper. We don't know that for sure. It was normal in Jerusalem, in places like this, uh, to have you know, all, all the houses. Many of the houses would have an upper room. Sometimes they were enclosed. Sometimes they were open and they would just make an open room out there. But, but many of the houses throughout Jerusalem had these upper rooms to them. This was a significantly large one. It was large enough to hold at least 120 people there as they gathered together. So this was no small upper room. It was a decent-sized room and a decent-sized house able to cater for uh, such a large group of people to, to stay and to worship and to be together. But this moment is it's the beginning of something remarkable. Right here, these, these people who have spent their life with Jesus, who have just seen Jesus ascend into heaven, who have heard him give them a commission to continue his work, these people now come back, they gather themselves together and they, they spend time together there And it is the beginning of something quite remarkable, the gathering of God's people together. Something something new is beginning. Something magnificent is taking place here. The gathering of God's people as a church is beginning. It's it's kind of like, you know, when and maybe you did the same when when you had children. I know we did it with each child. 
go through and, and each week or each month you go and you, you, you look at what pictures are available and what, and what, it, what it's like, what's happening inside, what does that, that baby look like, what's developing at each month. And, and in the early days, it's hard to tell what it is. Uh, you, things are, are still missing at that point, still developing. Some things are there, but they're not in the right place. They're still shifting around and finding where they, they belong. It's, it's still uh, your, your child, but it's, it looks a little weird. And that's kind of what we've got here with this gathering. Not everything is there yet. Not everything is in its right place yet. But this is the beginning. This is the, the, the conception of, of something quite remarkable. It's magnificent in its simplicity. We know, you know the, the diversity of the 11 apostles here and the, the various backgrounds they came from and how different they were, but they've been bound together in their belief and following Jesus Christ and they will move together in such, such great unity. The large room that they gather in suggests that uh, there is rich disciples amongst them as well. Jesus had the ability not just to reach the poor and the outcasts of society, but he also reached those in the upper parts of society, the rich and the poor alike. There is this great mix of people. We're told that the, the women are there, so, so that we understand. And Luke is, is good with this. He, he, he likes to bring to our attention the place and the ministry of women in the life of Jesus. And he wants us to make sure that to, to know that the women are there as well, which would include Mary Magdalene and, and Salome and, and others who administered to Jesus along the way, and including Jesus' own mother, Mary. They're all there. And they're ministering to one another and praying together. We're already beginning to see the beauty of God's people gathered together. But in this gathering of God's people, in this mix, and the, the, the diverse group that's, that's there, and, and what's happening as they begin to bind together without Jesus present, there is also not, not just this diverseness, but the encouragement that comes in God's people. Among the disciples that we're told are gathered here, the 11, of course, the women and others, there's a whole of about 120 there, but amongst those gathered there, it says, are Jesus' brothers, his family. So the other children that Mary had after Jesus with, with Joseph, his half-brothers, if you will, they're there. What makes that such an encouraging little statement? What makes it so encouraging is when we remember back to, to Luke and what took place in Luke, we know that Jesus' brothers despised his ministry. They opposed him. They were against Jesus and what he was preaching while he was there. Now, those same brothers who opposed Jesus now sit in a room with the others, worshipping and praying. The change that has come to their life. Now they are among the beginning of the church. In fact, not only are they among the beginning of the church, but what we know is several of his brothers become influential in the church. James, his brother James, becomes the leader of the church at Jerusalem. And will die 
for the sake of Jesus' name and for the gospel. His brother Jude writes what we have in our scripture, the book of Jude. So his brothers, who at one point while he lived and while Jesus was there and spoke to him, opposed him, now become influential movers and witnesses of the gospel. This is the beauty of what Jesus was beginning with the church. Don't be discouraged by the opposition of your family and your friends and the people that you're witnessing to. Keep witnessing. Keep praying. The gospel is powerful. One day, the people that you see right now opposing Christ may be sitting next to you, worshipping with you. Keep praying. Keep witnessing. The gospel is powerful. We see these people here obey God's word and then gather together with God's people. And thirdly, what are they doing as they gather together? It tells us in verse 14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. They prayed earnestly. It is, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Confronting, probably not the right word. Uh, Convicting, that's probably the better word. To see, when Jesus leaves and they have this task and they're told to wait, the first instinct of the early church is to pray. That's their first instinct. To gather together and pray. The word continued, where it says these all continued with one accord in prayer, speaks of earnest, active prayer. So this is not weak prayer. empty prayers. This is, this is prayers like James speaks of later, which, which require effort and energy. They are, are, are energetic. They are fervent. They are active in their prayer. And they have gathered together to pray. I admit that I have not led well in this. And to that, that end, at least one thing we will do to begin that again is, is what we were doing before where we had prayer before church on Sunday morning. We'll start that again. So next week I'll be here and I'll be, be ready and, and from 9.30ish you can get here or even before if you want to be here we will gather and we will pray together. We'll begin and we will see more times to pray together. It should be our first instinct in all things to pray. If a church is not a praying church, it is missing its greatest power. Acts shows us the church in prayer. You will see as we continue to go through and learn more and more about the early church, that at every turn, at every moment, at every trial, at every conflict, their first instinct is pray. And much of it is not individual prayer. Their first instinct is to pray together. To gather and pray together. Really, fervently praying. Why? We get a little glimpse of why here in these verses as it expands throughout the the book. It says, these all continued with one accord. 
They were bound in heart through prayer. They were bound in heart in prayer. Prayer is an important part of the Christian life. It is an important part of the church life. Church prayer, where we pray together or where we pray as a, as a group and we pray in our services, this, this is powerful. It is important. But the power of prayer, the power of corporate church prayer is not just in God doing a work or seeing what God can do or God answering prayer. One of the great powers of corporate prayer together is binding hearts together. One accord, that means in unity, bound in heart and purpose. There is power in prayer to bind hearts together. It's been said a thousand times by a number of different people, and so I don't know who to quote in this, but it says it's hard to be angry at people you're praying with. People that pray together grow together. So one of the first things that we learn here from this time of waiting is to wait for God's promise. And in the waiting, obey God's word, gather with God's people, and unite in prayer. The second thing I want us to learn this morning is preparing for God's promise. And in preparing for God's promise, see his purpose. See God's purpose. Verse 15 says... And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. And said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now, this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of all his entrails, gushed out, and it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So that field is called, in their own language, a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it. God has a plan. He has a purpose, a program so here we see Peter take the lead again. It's been a rocky period for Peter. Now Jesus having ascended and the group gathering together, Peter steps up. And he steps up into a place where he is going to stand for a long time to lead the people of God. He's not the only leader, but he certainly is one of the key leaders in the church. And what we find when Peter stands up is that he's been studying Scripture. Don't know how long he's been reading it, when this came to him, or how he found it, but we know he's been studying Scripture. And he understood as he read these passages from Psalms. So verse 20 quotes two different Psalms. He, the, the first part of verse 20, which we read, quotes from Psalm 69, verse 25. The last part is from Psalm 109, verse 8. But as he's been reading the Psalms, he understands this speaks to our moment. These were prophecies. These are things we need to understand. Everything that has happened and everything that is happening in that moment is part of God's plan. That God was going to have Jesus betrayed. 
was part of God's plan, that that betrayer would, would fall into to desperate and tragic circumstances and die and find judgment is part of God's plan, that they would need to replace that man was part of God's plan, all prophesied beforehand. A big part of this passage is showing us the, continue, the continuity of God's purpose. That when this is all happening, that the fact that, that Judas betrayed Jesus, and that now there's only 11 of them, and they don't know what to do, and they need to get somebody else. This is, this is not the people of God just running and, uh, and deciding, oh, what do we do now? And, and maybe we need to do this or do that. This is all part of God's plan. It is the continuity of God's plan. God knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew there were going to be 11 when he left, and they would need another. And he has planned for that to take place. Nothing stops his plan. Nothing has changed his plan. It also shows us that in our waiting, we should be studying, reading God's word, learning to understand it. The replacement of Judas as an apostle wasn't Peter's idea. It was the result of him studying scripture seeing truths that God had laid in there for God's work. Some say that the apostles shouldn't have done this, that Matthias is not the true replacement of Judas, that the true replacement should be Paul. Uh, I don't believe that to be true. I think Matthias is the 12th apostle. Paul doesn't meet any of the requirements And Paul recognizes that he doesn't meet any of the requirements here. In fact, Paul, though rightly is an apostle, he recognizes that he is not an apostle like these are. Matthias is the right apostle. Matthias is who God decided to replace Judas. As an intermediate sort of side story here, because Luke is, is, wants to make sure that we understand what's going on. And some of his readers may not be familiar with Judas and what happened. So he puts in a little side note of what took place with Judas and his tragic end. And what we learn here through this whole picture of what happens to the end of Judas is that rejecting God is always tragic. Rejecting God is always tragic. Luke gives us an explanation of why this had to happen. So why do they need Matthias? Because Judas died. Now, I want you to understand this. This is important in terms of who the apostles are and what they did. Judas is not being replaced because he died. Judas is being replaced because he defected. You know, when all the other apostles die, they are not replaced. So it's not a replacement. There isn't some continuity here where we always have to have an apostle. Judas was replaced because he defected from Christ, not simply because he died. Verse 16, Luke reminds us that he became, or Paul, Peter reminds us, he became a guide to those who killed Jesus. In verse 25, he reminds us the reason he is where he is and what took place is because he fell in transgression. That's why he is replaced, not because he died, but because he defected. There's also a reason why Luke gives us the gruesome details, and it is a little bit gross. But there's a reason he gives us these gruesome details. 
because it shows the devastation that comes by rejecting Christ. It doesn't mean that everyone is going to come to some horrific death. And that's not the point of it in terms of being a, 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 a horrific thing to reject Christ. But the horrific end that Judas came to, with his hanging and his falling and the, the whole bursting, the, the whole part of that, the, the horrific end was led up to by a whole lot of other things. Judas's rejection of Christ led to shame. It led to guilt. It led to trouble, betrayal. And it ended in horror. Verse 25 tells us that he went to his own place, which is another way to say that he went to his eternal demise. A place of judgment. Acts shows us many great, wonderful things of God. Power of God is just everywhere in the book of Acts. And we love those parts. We love the parts of Acts which are full of God's power and full of God's grace and and magnificent. But also through Acts, we find it full of the terrible reality of the judgment of sin. We see over and over in many places through the book of Acts the terrible tragedy of rejecting Christ. And this is what Luke wants us to know and be reminded of here the tragedy of rejecting Christ. See God's purpose, that this is the continuing work of God. Secondly, follow God's purpose. So Peter has been reading and he has found here that, that, that indeed one would betray Christ and he would need to be replaced. It says at the end of verse 20, and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas, by transgression, fell that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Here is the important part of Peter's discovery. So Peter has studied God's word, he has seen what needs to go, and here is the important part of it. They did it. They did it. They saw in God's word something needed to be done, that their group needed to change, that something had to be done to obey God, and they did it. As they gained understanding of God's word, it moved them to action. This is the point of knowing God's word. It's the point of every sermon. It's the point of every time we study. It's the point of every time you look and read into God's word to change us to be more like Christ. Knowing God's will is not enough. Once we know it, we must do it. Follow it. This is another thing that gave the early church such power. Submissive hearts. They were quick to listen and to follow and change as they needed to. And we'll see many examples of that as we move through the book of Acts. Your transition, this transition taking place in Acts is, 
is hard as they move from Jesus being there to this church which needs to spread through the whole earth. It's hard and it's difficult and it caused trouble and it caused tension and, and issues in and around them. But we constantly see people willing to listen, to learn and to change and to humbly submit to the will of God. They wisely pursue God's will. They set out some criteria. Who should we choose to replace Judas? And verse 21 through 23 show us the criteria. This person needed to be a man who was with Jesus from the time of John the Baptist right up until the time of his ascension. He needed to be a witness of every part of Christ's life as Christ taught and ministered and worked from the very beginning to the very end. He was to be, as they say, a witness, not just someone who who knew about it, but a witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He had to be present at the ascension. He had to know Jesus Christ. And though Paul rightly calls himself an apostle, and that's so because he was called by Christ, he doesn't meet these qualifications. And his role as an apostle is different. Paul's role was to the Gentiles. These men had their role to the Jews. They didn't pursue this with hard hearts or hard heads. That is, we have to do this, so let's go about and do it. But they did it with soft hearts in prayer. They were constantly, every part of this thing is bathed in prayer. This is no half-hearted job. This is no quick decision. They, They thought, they set out criteria which they prayed over. They sought men which they prayed over. They chose these men having prayed over it. Every moment of this is done in prayer. And they seek God's guidance. They genuinely wanted to know what God wanted done. They learned from God's word humbly. They submitted to obey it. They prayed, seeking God's guidance to accomplish it. And their process is worth learning from. They prayed because God knows our hearts. That's why they pray, you, O Lord, verse 24, who know the hearts of all. They prayed because God knows our hearts. Both of these men have good reputations. Both of these men meet the qualifications set out. Both of these men are worthy for the role. But only God knows what is ahead. Only God knows which of these men has been prepared for this moment. Which of these men is the right one for that place. We seek God in our decisions because he knows intimately what is beyond our ability to know at all. They prayed because God knows our hearts. Secondly, we see they prayed because they desired to know God's will. Not their own agenda. They wanted to know which of these men God wanted. They weren't willing to guess. Say, well, you know, they're both good. Let's just flip a coin and see which one comes up. It's, it's not that, that casual. They wanted to genuinely know what God desired. So they prayed to know God's will. 
Thirdly, they prayed because it was an important position. This was a position of ministry and apostleship. A unique position. He was to be a minister of the gospel. He was to take his place amongst the apostles, that is, ones sent and chosen by Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus chose the other 11, so Jesus chose Matthias. He was going to teach Jesus. Then, having earnestly sought God, they followed an Old Testament practice. And this is part where this is descriptive, not prescriptive. It tells us what they did. They follow an Old Testament practice which God had ordained to use for the priests. The casting of lots. Now, this casting of lots wasn't a chance game. So it's not like the lots that they played at the the foot of the cross where they cast lots to find who would take home Jesus' clothes. It's not that kind of thing. It was not left up to chance. This was a way that God had designed for the people of God to know God's will. God would intervene in this. So it's not a, uh, look here, let's just toss a coin kind of thing. It's also a thing we see which doesn't, it it no longer happens. After the Holy Spirit comes, it's never seen again. This was something God ordained before the coming of the Spirit. So it's no longer necessary, it's no longer in use. And even though Kirsten said the other day she was um, researching some stuff for the kids' things and found that there is a website where a lady says, I've begun using lots because that's what the Bible says, and I've made decisions, my life has turned out terribly, but it must be what God wants. Okay, this is, God doesn't want you to go home and get out a bunch of dice and start rolling dice to see what God wants. That's not how it works. It worked this way. They had uh, things which they would, would roll out. And it, even Proverbs says, the, the die is cast, but God determines the outcome. Proverbs 18.33. They cast the die, God would intervene and move that to show his answer. That's how it was designed to work in the Old Testament. That's exactly what the apostles were expecting here. But as they threw it out, having sought God, God would give them the answer. Matthias becomes the 12th apostle. After this, we know nothing of him. We don't know where he went. There's conjecture. He may have gone to Ethiopia, some say to Turkey. We don't know where he went. We don't know what happened to him. But that is also true of every other apostle mentioned in this passage, except for Peter, James, and John. We know nothing of the others and what took place after this. This is an odd time in church history. But two things remain constant. To know God's will... And follow it, we need to study the Bible. And the church needs to pray. No matter what else happens in this time, two things are constant before this happened, two things are constant while this happened, and two things are constant even today. To know God's will, we need to study God's word and obey it. And the church needs to pray. It's true before the ascension. It's true after the ascension. It's true right now. In our times of waiting and in our times of busyness about God's work and doing what needs to be done, the example of the early church is worth following. Study God's word and obey it. It's no good just reading it 
knowing what's in it. Let it change you. Gather with God's people and be encouraged. Unite our hearts in prayer. As we do these things, we will be prepared for the work of God in us and we will be prepared for the work of God through us. This is where the power of God comes from in his people. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, what we learn from it. Lord, even as we see your, your work, as you continue and you, you move your people from one, one part of your work to another, but it's all continuous and it's all perfectly to your plan. And we thank you that through all of these things we see constants. You are always there. You have told us what we need to know and you will lead us and guide us as we seek you in your word and in prayer. So, dear God, as we set our minds as a gathered people and as a people individually to seek your will in your word and to obey it and to pray, we pray that through us we would see the power of God as we seek you and your will. Thank you and we praise you for these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.